This episode is sponsored by HSBC. HSBC is partnering with VCs and tech companies transitioning to low carbon, so it created a $100 million venture debt fund to help partners and clients develop clean tech solutions that can lead to a low carbon future. Learn more at business.us.hsbc.com sustainability. And this episode is sponsored by PwC. Embed ESG in your strategy and purpose. It's how you'll run a more resilient business while creating a better world. Visit pwc.com slash US slash ESG reporting. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, voices of the 2021 class of GreenBiz 30 Under 30, what the new IEA roadmap means for your company, the state of the chief sustainability officer, and the 33 sustainability certifications you need to know. We're wearing a badge of honor this week on 350. It's May 21st, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. What a week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What a week. <laughs> we had our uh, annual 30 Under 30 release. Always a big day for us at Green Biz, particularly on the editorial team. Um, just a her. her <laughs> Herculean effort. I can't even say and the heroic word. heroic, too. <laughs> and heroic. <laughs> Maybe I was trying to mash them up. A Herculean effort of, of identifying these 30 young people out of hundreds of, of potential ones and, and, and boiling it down to the 30 and then uh, capturing their essence in 250 words or less. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's a great job by, by you and the editorial team. I know... Uh, our colleague Elsa Wenzel was uh, led the editing part of that and, and sort of made it all a coherent whole. So, but it was fun. And, and uh, what do you got queued up for us today on that? Later on in the episode, we'll queue up three uh, highlights from from the thirty, and uh, we'll be running those uh, clips over the course of the next not ten weeks, but almost ten weeks. Um, so stay tuned for that. That'll be good. And then we have. Uh, Next week's Verge Electrify event coming up. And also next week, um, I hear there's a vacation coming up. There is a vacation coming up. I'm venturing forth out of my state, which is actually kind of bizarre to, to be leaving state. Uh, pandemic has been really rough um, for me being able to see family. So I'm super excited. I'm betting you're not alone in that regard. Yeah, I know. I'm it's not all alone. happening. We, we, we went to dinner at someone's house the other day and over the weekend. It's all changing and lots more to come, but you know what? Let's take a step back and look at the Week in Review. So the big news this week in places not called Green Biz, although it was big news in our shop, is it was the uh, 
International Energy Agency uh, released this report that, that really said in no uncertain terms that we have to stop coal-fired power plants, no more new ones, that we have to phase out fossil fuel energy now. Uh, really striking U-turn. And by the way, this was the agency that was created in 1973-74 when the world was reeling from uh, this uh, oil embargo, oil shock. And their their main job was to keep global oil supplies flowing smoothly. Mm-hmm. And now we are, here we are, uh, not quite half a century later, and and all of a sudden they're saying, Oil needs to stop, and uh, all new projects need to be curbed, and that goes for coal as well, and and even uh, new natural gas fields. So this was quite a a moment in in that this is something that obviously people have been talking about for a while. Activists have been talking about uh, keep it in the ground and uh, and, and a lot of other campaigns to do exactly this. But this came from this independent, uh, pretty influential player in world energy politics, as uh, Michael Holder wrote uh, in this week for uh, in Green Biz. And so I just think, you know, this is something that is, is so critical. And by the way, uh, just to work in a plug here, this comes on the heels of the uh, Verge Electrify event next week, which is about the electrification of everything. How do we turn gas-powered buildings into electric buildings? How do we turn gas-powered cars into electric, you know, and all of that, the infrastructure um, and manufacturing and and all the rest. This is uh, overnight sensation that (laughs) began decades ago, (laughs) but it's it's really, uh, we're reaching that, and I hate to use this because it's so overused, this proverbial tipping point. Yeah. I was reading between the lines and, and I got two big things out of the report uh, as I was assessing the, the various uh, conclusions that it reached. The first of which was is basically signaling to the investment world and to the big banks that keep investing in oil exploration and, and, um, and gas exploration. It's, it's sort of a signal saying, uh, cut it out. <laughs> um, you know, because because as we know, many of the, the big banks still haven't they're not necessarily doing new ones, but they're still funding the the, the existing activities that are, that are going on. So that that sort of uh, should be a wake up call for them as well. And and speaking of wake up calls, you mentioned the natural gas stuff. I think I I got a little bit less clarity out of that part um, than than on oil and coal. It, there is still a lot of new uh, investments going on with with natural gas, and I think. Uh, even in the European Union, they're trying to figure, sort out where what where that stands and sort of the climate metrics that they're using and that they're going to enforce as they move forward. And there's still a lot of uh, of uh, confusion around what what's going on. One of the things this report did say was that we need to peak natural gas use and electricity must peak in the mid 2020s, which is real soon. So I guess you know they're they're less definitive about it, but they're saying, hey, you, you have to you have to. Think about this sooner than you probably were. Yeah. So yeah, da- absolutely a major, major report. And, and I think that a lot of this is, is also going to accelerate and happen much more quickly. Uh, Denmark mm-hmm. is one of the few countries they canceled a planned round of oil and gas exploration licenses. And I think you know mm-hmm. uh, President mm-hmm. Biden here in the U.S. 
is uh, has taken a more limited step around a temporary ban on new leases for oil and gas drilling, at least on federal land and in federal waters. And so I think, and particularly as we get close to copper, maybe coming out of COP26 in Glasgow in November, that more and more countries are going to do this. We're, we're, we're hearing from from more and more banks that are making commitments to stop funding these things. And there'll always be some banks that, you know, will will fill that void. But but the world's largest banks, JP Morgan Chase, is isn't quite there, but they've made some uh, announcements in the past few days around winding down some of their uh, their oil and gas lending. And um, on the other hand, they're choosing carbon intensity as their metric, which means they could still increase their overall mm-hmm. emissions uh, from their oil and gas portfolio. But, you know, this is, again, this is stuff that's been talked about for years. And yeah. and just in the past few months, we've seen this acceleration of activity. And I think that, that by the end of this year, we're going to see even more. And in, in over the next 12 months, let's say, uh, a, a lot of significant U-turns, uh, if you will, around so many of these commitments and financing and and other things. So uh, it's 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 a scary story because it talks about the immediacy of what we need to do. And I think everybody, short of the most Pollyannish, understand that this is not going to happen quickly. But the fact that we're finally getting to this point where we're talking about basically winding down fossil fuels, uh, even if it's over some number of years or a decade or two, is really, uh, it's, it may be too little too late, but it's its finally happening. And that's encouraging. We had another great piece this week, another big list, actually. <laughs> we have the 33 sustainability certifications you need to know. And I actually love this because it helped me. <laughs> You know, I know there's a lot out there, and this really uh, helped me hone in on on exactly what is important, um, or at least the ones that have the most attention right now. Um, really great resource here, I think, for anyone uh, trying to sort out where they should focus their attention, and certainly for for the new the newer newer folks out there who are uh, building their knowledge maybe from other roles within companies and, and trying to understand. What could be useful and what uh, maybe noise? I'm just curious. You edited this piece, Joel. Um, can you give me a little bit of the backstory on on where the idea came from? Well, Trish Kenlon is the founder of Sustainable Career Pathways. She wrote the piece, and she uh, uh, does a lot of uh, career counseling and I think placement, and and has made sort of the profession of sustainability the mainstay of her business. And so she produced this report. And, and I don't know that this is just for newbies, uh, Heather. I, I don't think this is just for people who are young early on in their career, because there's a lot of mid-career and even later career people who are, are wondering, you know, what certifications would, would do I need to be an effective sustainability professional? And, and that's always a tough one, because I know plenty of, of extraordinary uh, sustainability executives who have no certifications. So it's not, it's not a requirement. But on the other hand, uh, there's a lot more competition uh, for these jobs. And uh, and there's a lot more that sustainability departments are being asked to do. And so it, it would, I think, behooves uh, at least some people to be 
you know, thinking about how to up their game. And so she goes through, there's a, a few uh, general sustainability and climate professional certifications. There's a bunch of green building certifications. Lead AP uh, is accredited professional, is uh, is widely known. But there's also uh, uh, Green Globes Emerging Professional, and there's the International Living Future Institute who has the Living Building Challenge. They have an accreditation. Uh, well buildings have an accreditation. There's a number in the uh, energy field, uh, being a certified energy manager or renewable energy professional or a certified sustainable development professional. And then there's a bunch of others. Uh, American Center for Life Cycle Assessment has a life cycle assessment certified professional. You know, and, and it goes it goes on as a whole bunch of these. And I just think it's, it's interesting. She, do, she doesn't get into this question of, do you really need a certification? That's uh, maybe a bigger issue. And obviously that's gonna de depend on each individual and each individual organization where they work or where the, where the individual wants to work. But this is a, a great, great list. What did you think? Mm -hmm. Well, I had the same impression. And, and, and you know, when I initially looked at the headline, I was like, ooh, you know, I know there's a lot of different technical and tactical certifications that you can get, but this is really focused on you as an individual and how you manage and, and how you look at your at your scope of work. Um, and I felt like, uh, to your point before about, it's not just for newbies, if you will, like as I put it in the beginning, it's at this time of, of the climate movement, it's so important for everyone to keep learning, right? To keep their minds open, to, to look for different places for knowledge. And I, I, for, this is one of those things where it, if you already know something, a little bit about something, why not take the step and, uh, and, and get a, a more rounded, I, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the living futures, um, the, the sort of living buildings stuff, as I think about the infrastructure build out that we need to do and how could these new buildings be, be, as we say so many times, not just better, but, you know, less worse, but better <laughs> structures for the future. And how do, how do we how do we really make it a, a positive impact instead of just doing less bad? Um, so I I appreciated it because uh, it really looked at at um, people that weren't necessarily sustainability professionals who could get it could could get this sort of knowledge into their their general role. And, and I, I always love when people are thinking holistically about it. So, yeah. Yeah, lots of you know, I think anyone will be impressed with a number of them. There's a, you mentioned infrastructure. There, the Institute for Sustainable Infrastructure has a sustainability professional uh, certification. There's a green roof professional accreditation. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has a circular economy pioneer uh, program that has a certification and, and water stewardship, zero waste. It's just it's it's really quite impressive. Yeah, it is. It is. And and actually, this puts me into uh, thinking about your piece this week that you did, Joel, about the 30 under 30 and next gen thinking. And um, I want to take us there because one of the things that I always think about as I'm editing the 30 under 30 every year and as I as I interview these extraordinary young people is what can I learn from them? And I, I, I and you really took this to heart and I loved your column this week because you you talk about just sort of that interplay and our responsibility, um, our responsibility to not just encourage the next generation, but to also 
let go of things and also to to learn from them and to change ourselves as we as we grow in our roles. And so I'm I, I'm wondering uh, what inspired this piece, other than the fact that we have this awesome report. <laughs> um, you know, what's up? Well, it was certainly the report that, that spurred it. But, you know, I, I've been going through my own uh, process here in my late 60s after more than three decades in the field of all this stuff. We talk about sustainable business, clean technology, climate tech now. Uh, you, you know, it's I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I, I, I love what I do and I'm better not. I have no plans to uh, sail off into the sunset. Although there are days when it feels interesting. But what I found in the Green Biz organization, and we're now almost 40 people strong, is that there's a, we just need to step aside a little bit and let some of the younger people come in and step into their own. And, and by the way, we've done an amazing job of that. I think we have some you know people who have uh, come into the organization and are now leading conferences and, and have their own newsletters and columns, uh, giving them a platform that they might not have had. Uh, and so at the same time, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to step aside. It's hard. You know, I love being on stage. I know you do too, Heather. And and it and and yet there's less there's less room for us because we need to make room for others. And so it's a challenge. I think a lot of people go through, even if you're not on stage. It's just you know, how do you bring those people along? Maybe faster than uh, than you came along. Uh, maybe accelerating their development to a point where it's like, wow, it took me 15 years to get here, and now they're doing it within three or five. Uh, that may be okay. And certainly, uh, we're in a field where time is not on our side. And uh, it's the one non-renewable resource that may be the most limited here in terms of dealing with climate change and, and so many other things. So yeah, we're at this moment. And, and we had this moment of this 30 under 30, where I just thought it was interesting to bring together that generation with sort of this moment that I've been going through for the past year or two within my company um, and and challenge the sustainability uh, folks out there, the our listeners, to think about how they can be a part of this too, how they can make room. And I'm not talking about stepping aside or early retirement or uh, anything of the sort, but just bringing people along uh, much faster than you may think is appropriate. So... It's a bit of a challenge and also hopefully a little inspiration. This week, the WineRib Group, a sustainability recruiting firm, published a report titled The Chief Sustainability Officer 10 Years Later. It takes stock of the evolution of the corporate sustainability leader within the C-suite over the past decade. There's a lot of really interesting findings about how the role is changing, the changing influence of CSOs within their companies, and why 2020 was a banner year. Here to talk about it all is the founder of the WineRib Group, Ellen WineRib. Hey, Ellen. Hi, Joel. So let's talk about some of the key takeaways in this report. First of all, you said that there's more CSOs who are having more influence and that a lot of this is being driven by the growth of interest in ESG, environmental, social and governance data. So what's going on out there? Well, the 
the investor and the role of the investors as a stakeholder 10 years ago, because we we created, we published a seminal report 10 years ago, and we had data on that. And it was about the rise of the chief sustainability officer, and it was a relatively new field. And then we decided to look at the, look at the numbers over time. And so we did this check 10 years later to see how it's evolved over the last 10 years. So 10 years ago, I mean, climate change certainly existed. It, you know, all, there's plenty of things that that existed then that exist now, but the role that the investor played did not um, was n- not nearly prominent back then, ten years ago, as what it is today. And so that tie-in is just driving an enormous amount of change. I mean, obviously in the financial markets, but if you're looking at sustainability at corporations, it's driving a huge amount of change. Well, you mentioned also that there's more women in the field, but racial diversity still has a ways to go. Absolutely. So what one of the main findings was that women were CSOs 28% 10 years ago, and now 54% are women. And so there's a huge rise in women, almost double a huge rise in women. Yet diversity, ethnic diversity among sustainability professionals is not very high. And, um, and I'd say it, it's the same amongst chief sustainability officers as well. So we're not seeing that that increase in diversity that I think we would all want to see. Sticking to the women part of this, I've had people tell me that there are aspects of the job of being a chief sustainability officer that for which at least stereotypically women are better suited, uh, bridge building, communications, uh, inclusion, things like that. Is that Do you find any truth to that? Yes, there's truth to that. One of our findings is that 25% of CSOs are JDs, lawyers, and another 31% are MBAs. Um, The number that I don't have at the top of my head is around engineers. And typically, you have men in engineering, and therefore, in certain industries, let's say automotive or manufacturing, those CSOs tend to be more engineers and more men. So there's also the the industry. I think one of the questions might be interesting is there's certain f- functions like human resources or communications that are tend to be more women. And is the position, is the role in sustainability as a field in general evolving to be one of those feminine or more women heavy fields? So one of the interesting Parts of this is that there was uh, you have a chart in the report that says the year that company first appointed a CSO and goes back to uh, the early about well about 10, 15 years ago. And there's you know it's got some ups and downs, but 2020 is like this hockey stick. It's as massive. It's like two more than twice as much as any other year. The number of companies appointing their first CSO. 2020 of all years. Why do you think that happened? I think a lot of, we asked the CSOs that in in the survey, and a lot of CSOs said it was a long time in the making, and uh, I think that's the the general, the investor, ESG, it's, the time is now, climate change, these issues around racial equality, justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, COVID, there's, there's so much going on in the world, and sustainability is so much about taking what's going on in the world, interpreting that 
and then making sense of that for the company. And so given, plus the investor pressure, um, given all that's going on, I think a lot of companies just rose to the occasion in, in the year 2020. So let me ask you before we let you go, when you do your next report, the chief sustainability officer 20 years later in 2031, how do you think this will have changed? My prediction is that you're going to see an influx in chief ESG officers. And it's, it's you know, who's leading who? Um, we did a search for Splunk recently, and the senior most person is, is, the, ES, is the ESG leader not a sustainability leader. We also looked at uh, a few companies that are adding ESG to the title, so chief sustainability and ESG officer. And I think we're gonna have a, a rise in that as well. Great, Ellen Weinreb is the founder of Weinreb Group, which has just released a new report, the chief sustainability officer 10 years later. You can download it at weinrebgroup.com. Thanks so much, Ellen. Thank you. So as we said earlier, Heather's queued up uh, a number of 30 under 30 excerpts from sort of the conversations we had with them and want to let you hear their voices directly. We're going to do three this week and probably three next week and do that for a while. Who have you queued up this week, Heather? It is strictly alphabetical. So that's how I'm, I'm organizing this one. And up first, we have Zach Angelini. He's a senior environmental manager for Timberland. Myni Barudin, she is the regional director and tribal liaison for Vote Solar, and Brianna Buckles, sustainability manager with East West Tea Company. Listen up and enjoy. Hi, I'm Zach Angelini. I'm the senior manager of environmental stewardship for Timberland. Timberland occupies this space between fashion and nature. Within that, I'm super excited about, and I'd say like a major ambition is to help transition the fashion industry from today being focused on making beautiful products to in the future, expanding that focus to also be about making the world more beautiful through how our products are, are made. My ambition definitely lies in the space of, of going beyond sustainability in actually being a part of bringing more life and abundance and beauty, I guess, to, to the world. There's, there's definitely a lot that makes me hopeful on, in that space. I do, just from what I've seen in my career, which is still like a relatively short period of time, I feel like I've seen a really drastic shift in, in mindset from, I feel like at the beginning of my career, there was, it was challenging to get people on board with sustainability. And I feel like it really has to do with the fact that like making things less bad is like a less, much less exciting proposition to people than making things better. And so I feel like I'm seeing this shift in terms of like engagement and excitement. And I feel like it comes down to that we have the opportunity to kind of like leap past sustainability in some ways by thinking in a regenerative mindset. And I, I feel like the concept of regeneration is just like a more optimistic, like motivational concept that we, and even intu intuitive to people that like human 
can be a part of this process of making the world more alive. And that's what all species do is participate in making the world alive and like any species providing their gifts, I guess, back to nature. There's the potential that it's like it can scale so much more quickly than sustainability because it's intuitive and it's exciting and optimistic. And I think that that gives me a lot of hope and motivation, I think. I'm Mayani Barudin, and I am working with Boat Solar as regional director and tribal liaison. Really what started me in this is I would sit in the car, in the back of my mom's car, looking out you know, the window and just seeing all types of development, um, casinos, golf courses, uh, seeing smokestacks, and just always wondering you know, why those were on the reservation and you know, why we don't do something that's better for the environment and can actually help our people in different ways, especially over the long term. So that's really, you know, just kind of my, <laughs> my young naive questions and then digging more into, you know, the clean energy transition, just seeing that, you know, we really need someone who knows, you know, embraces working with the tribes, knows how to do that, also has the passions there. But yeah, we just really, you know, I envision a day where, you know, all of the tribes stand to benefit the most from the clean energy transition. And the more I worked on solar work, the more I realized that, you know, a lot of it is impossible without having the underlying policy there. Um, So, you know, just making sure that the doors are open so that we can look at all alternatives as we proceed. I feel like energy development for the tribes is really, I guess, counterintuitive in a way because, you know, tribes are, you know, sovereign nations. Their sovereign status, you would think, would make them supersede state jurisdiction. At the same time, you know, state regulated utilities are, you know, under state regulation. um, And the tribes are served by those utilities. So we really just need to make sure that in the policy, at least even in state level policy, that, you know, state jurisdiction isn't encroaching on tribal sovereignty. Um, We need to make sure that, you know, rate making, rulemaking procedures actually are beneficial economically to the tribe since they're also, you know, under those uh, regulatory agencies for the broader utility. So there's a lot of different parts and, you know, it really is highly dependent on each tribe. Like I said, some have their own utilities, some are served by IOUs, some are served by co-ops, but it's really just making sure that, you know, tribes are involved in the process. And since the, you know, the energy grid expands beyond cities, reservations, all of that, just making sure that they're clued in and supportive and that it actually is reflective of, you know, what their needs are. You know, I think tribes really are the leaders in a lot of this clean energy development in so many ways. You know, we even see, you know, national examples of Standing Rock and opposing pipelines. And as Native people, we're kind of having a, a shift in how, you know, how we are stewards of our environment, you know, being leaders in renewable energy. You know, even New Mexico um, is a really great example of that with the passage of the Community Solar Act. Um, I led a tribal community solar task force and made sure we had buy-in the whole way and that, you know, that really appeals to our legislators, to our governor, and make sure that, you know, we're actually creating an equitable program. Um, so, you know, that, as a reminder, you know, there's Native people on and off reservations, so making sure that we include all fronts of accessibility for Indigenous peoples. Brianna Buckles, and I'm the Sustainability Manager at East West Tea Company.
The thing that excites me the most about this space, and honestly, the reason that that this company kind of became the perfect fit for me, is if we look at internationally sourced agricultural products that primarily come from developing countries. So things like coffee, like cocoa, tea um, are all great examples. There's so much opportunity to support to support the human beings who who grow these crops, right? So it's it's one thing in the United States to to be drinking our our coffee every day and and to not think about or drink your tea every day and to not think about those those people um, that are traditionally in in impoverished parts of the world and what their day to day life is like. And so in in the business world, we that's an opportunity. I mean, that's an opportunity for us to impact and influence change. For us as a company, if you if you pick up a box of our tea and there's 16 different ingredients on it, those ingredients in many cases will have come from 16 different countries and countless different villages and communities around the world. And so in that one cup of tea, the ability you have to impact multiple lives by changing business practices to put value on the the source for those ingredients is I mean that's 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 what I intend to continue working on in in my life's work I guess and and we often think of these sustainability concepts uh, environmental sustainability social sustainability economic sustainability in these distinct kind of different buckets but what I really enjoy is looking for opportunities where we can implement practices in our own supply chain that bring all of those things together, where we can find opportunities on farms or on, on the growing locations for these ingredients to actually um, capture and sequester carbon and, and reduce the environmental impact of our supply chain while providing economic stability um, and better income sources to those people that are growing those ingredients. When we can find strategies that, that intertwine all of those sustainability concepts, to me, that's like the, the most the most amazing thing that, that we could be working on. That's where I get like really excited. Um, and so no matter, you know, what company I'm working for or what I'm doing in my future, that's that's kind of the, the concept or subject I'll, I'll always want to be working on. Thank you for those. They're so inspiring to hear those voices. More coming up in the episodes ahead. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. You'll learn more about them. We also welcome your comments, your questions, your tips, your rants, your anything you got, throw it at us. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week, but Sarah Golden and I will be back with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by HSBC. HSBC is partnering with VCs and tech companies transitioning to low carbon, so we created a $100 million venture debt fund to help partners and clients develop clean tech solutions that can lead to a low carbon future.
Learn more at business.us.hsbc.com sustainability. And this episode is sponsored by PwC. ESG Pulse is a tech-enabled service that helps you measure, report, and gain deeper insights and benchmark against your peers. Visit pwc.com slash us slash ESG Pulse.